0: Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page. The link for those are down in the show notes. There you can find all kinds of bonus content, such as pictures of the characters, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. The officers' club was eerily quiet. No music was playing on the record player. No guitars were being played. No alcohol-induced laughter or storytelling could be heard. Just the sounds of wooden chairs creaking and the occasional murmuring of a man asking for another drink were all that could be heard. Jack looked around the room and saw the men who inhabited the space. None of them looked like the brave soldiers who were winning a war. None of them looked like the brave heroes that people back home were talking about and writing about. Looking around the room some more, Jack began to wonder if anyone back home would recognize these men for the men that they once were before they flew off to war. Would their own mothers be able to recognize them, he thought to himself? Would their girlfriends or wives be able to pick them out of a crowd? So many of these men were frail by comparison to the men that they once were before they arrived in England. So many of them, while physically they might look the same, they now acted different, spoke different, and lived different. They were no longer ordinary men, for they were the result of a war that swallowed their friends, who were good young men and had so much to live for yet never got to live it. They were the types of men who experienced the kind of hell that only a select few men from every generation know of, and they were the kind of men that experienced this type of hell that kills the spirits of those who survive it. Jack aimed his sights and thoughts on the paper that was in front of him. He had been sitting at this table with the paper in front of him and a pencil in hand for almost half an hour. It wasn't that he didn't know what to write or how to write it. It was the fact that he didn't want to write it. Writing out the words meant that what he was saying was in fact real. Writing out the words meant that he knew what was coming for him. Other men have written letters like this, and he always thought that they were bleak and morbid for doing so. He thought that it was a sign of giving up or giving in to the dark thoughts that plagued the minds of airmen in between missions. However, after the last few weeks, his own realization of his possible demise seemed all too real and unavoidable. Men die every mission. That's just a fact. Yet he never thought he was in that group of men. He always pictured himself as the one who returned home from war, like his father did, with medals, artifacts, and stories to share with his kids, who would look at him with a sense of pride and admiration. Maybe it was his youthful arrogance, or possibly his youthful ignorance, that made him think this way. Jack set his pencil down and slid his chair back and stood up. His clothes hung off of his body. His leather jacket swallowed him. As he walked towards the bar, his bones ached like a man who had aged 50 years in the matter of months. Having arrived at the bar, Jack went into his pocket and took out four British pennies and laid them on the bar. The bartender, without the two men even having to say a word to each other, arrived back at Jack with a pint of ale, his favorite. Jack nodded his head as a way of saying thank you to the bartender. Grabbing the pint of ale, he returned to the empty table that was once full of his friends and crew members, but now just housed him. Before he sat the glass down, he quickly downed half of the drink and then wiped the phone from his upper lip. Sitting back down, he took in a deep breath and reached into his right pocket, took out a lighter and a pack of Lucky Strike cigarettes placing one cigarette in between his lips and putting the rest of the pack on the table. He lit the cigarette, and after procrastinating for a few more moments, sat forward, grabbed his pencil, and began writing. Dear Mom and Dad, If you are receiving this letter, then your world has just ended. You have received the telegram that has caused your biggest fears to come true. First thing I want to say is, you both were excellent parents to me. The best. You raised me right, and I'm sure many of my fallen military brothers were blessed by the man that you raised me to be. Some of them, through your letters to them, felt like you were one of their own parents, and to that I say thank you. Second, please take care of Marlene. I know you two never got close, but please see to it that she finds someone else that will make her just as happy. She too will receive a letter like this in the days to come. Help her through it. This can't be easy for her. And third, don't grieve too hard. You always told me that death is not the end and that our time on this earth is minimal to the time we will have together in the world to come. Dad used to always say, in times of peace, children are the ones who bury their parents. But we're not living in a time of peace now, are we? I guess as this is just the reality of the world that we live in. Mom and Dad, I love you greatly. I was so blessed to have you as my parents. You have made me the richest young man alive. Thank you so much for loving me, and thank you for doing what God has called you to do and to be. Love your son, Jack. months earlier, March 2nd, 1944, Haverhill, England, 1900 hours. The Red Lion Inn was a quaint pub, located about two miles west of downtown Haverhill, England. It looked originally to be an estate, but for the last 22 years it had served as a popular pub in the surrounding area. Before the war, scholars and professors from nearby Cambridge would come here, along with some of the town's old men, who would sit and talk about the world's problems and how they could fix them. But for the last three years, the Red Line was serving a much different purpose and was seeing a vastly different clientele. Nearly every night, droves of United States Army Air Corps officers had entered through its doors and drank until they had stayed long past their welcome. Tonight was looking like one of those nights. The cold 39 degree air seemed to push people inside due to the fact that the interior of the pub was very small, but it had two furnaces that heated up the room quite nicely. Entering through the front door of the pub were two young men. Both of them were dressed in the standard Army Air Corps officer uniforms, which were made up of a dark green drab wool jacket and a khaki colored wool pant. Underneath their jackets were a dark olive collared shirt with the khaki tie tucked in behind the jacket. The first man who walked in stood at 5 foot 7 inches tall and removed his officer's hat the moment he walked in the front door, revealing a full head of brown hair, fixed in a graduation style. He looked young, and he felt young too. He was only 22 years old and felt like a child as he looked around the room and saw nothing but a room full of fellow officers who looked 10 years his senior. However, in reality, most of the men in the room were about the same age as him, maybe even a few years older. He had a pointed nose, a white face, and thick brown eyebrows. He was built like he was born to be a football player, which he was back in high school. The man's name was 2nd Lieutenant Jack Miller of St. Louis, Missouri the co-pilot of a brand-new, combat-ready B-17 Flying Fortress, which was sitting back at base just five miles away. Jack's father was a veteran of the First World War and would tell young Jack all about his time in the Army. Most of his stories revolved around the outrageous yet hilarious comrades that he served with. He hardly ever talked about the horrendous things he experienced and witnessed in combat. Subsequently, Jack was raised with a love for all things military, and took special interest in the Civil War, having read what felt like every book on the subject. In fact, there was a period in Jack's life where he could be found every Saturday afternoon having coffee with a very elderly man named Mr. Weathers, who at the age of 18 fought in the Battle of Gettysburg alongside General George Meade. Jack would talk to Mr. Weathers for hours before returning home just in time for dinner, Mr. Weathers was a history teacher of 49 years and inspired the young man to have dreams of becoming a history teacher like himself. Consequently, in pursuits of that dream, Jack found himself going to Mr. Weathers alma mater at the University of Pittsburgh where he met his fiance, Marlene Flora. Marlene was the daughter of a bakery shop owner and was enrolled at Chatham University in Pittsburgh. Her father's bakery was down the street from the University of Pittsburgh. And so during the summer months, when Jack was not in school, he worked at the bakery where he would chat with the owner's daughter. The two began dating when Jack was a sophomore in college, and the two had attempted to get married before Jack went off to war. But the wedding was canceled due to Marlene's mother having been in a terrible car accident a month before the scheduled wedding date. Jack joined the Army Air Corps out of his other love, airplanes. After riding inside of a barnstorming plane when he was 14 years old, Jack had an obsessive love for aviation. When it came time for him to enlist, it didn't take him more than a nanosecond to pick which branch of the military he would serve in. Having completed pilot training in the States and graduating from flight school, he was sent off to Savannah, Georgia to be assigned a plane and a crew. There he met the man he would be sitting next to within the cockpit. First Lieutenant Anthony Backus of Youngstown, Ohio, or as he was known as, The Boss. The Boss stood at six feet, two inches tall, had thick black hair which was slicked back and combed ever so precisely. He was very thin, had wide shoulders and a looseness to his walk. He also had protruding brown eyes and olive skin. The Boss had worked as a lawyer in Youngstown, Ohio before joining up in the spring of 1943. Having grown up with a father who worked in the harsh conditions of the rubber factory in Youngstown, the boss had no desire to follow his father's footsteps in the factory. He instead focused his eyes on becoming a lawyer like his uncle was. It was in law school where he fell in love with a woman named Catherine and the two got married in 1941. The boss joined the Army Air Corps due to having previously been introduced to the world of aviation through reading about the famous pilot Charles Lindbergh and found that he was naturally gifted at handling an airplane. He graduated top of his class both in law school and in flight school. Showing great potential, the Army even promoted the 24-year-old cadet to a first lieutenant. Jack, not wanting to make a scene, given he already felt like everybody in the room was looking at him, found an empty table just in front of the bar. Once Jack found the empty table, he walked right up to it, avoiding any direct eye contact with those in the room. The boss, however, had a much more robust entry. Following Jack's path to the empty table with a large smile on his face, he took in the room and all those who were in it. The room smelt of burning wood and cigarettes and looked like something out of a movie. The ceiling was low with long black wooden beams and would look like plaster in between the beams. The floor was laid with a brown oak board which ran the length of the building, which were accompanied by the wavy cream-colored plaster walls that encased the room. The boss saw Jack sitting at the table with his back to the door. Walking up to the table, he looked at the three officers who were sitting left of their table. Only one of the three men bothered to make eye contact with the boss as he walked up past her table to get to the chair on the other side of Jack. The boss proceeded to then ask the men how they were doing. The only one who responded back was the man who had previously made eye contact with the boss as he was passing them. "'Doing just fine, thank you,' the man replied. The man was slender and had a five o'clock shadow and looked to be in his early twenties. He had short, dark, curly hair and held the rank of first lieutenant. "'Excellent. What are you drinking? Anything good?' The boss asked. "'Gin, actually,' the man replied. The other two officers looked annoyed at the boss, but the boss didn't seem to care. He continued his friendly chatter. "'Is that the thing to get here, Jin?' "'Oh, no. I'm just living in luxury tonight. I usually take a pint of brown and bitter. It's what this country's known for. I take it this is your first time out?' the man responded. "'Is it that obvious?' "'I'm not a huge fan of anything called brown and bitter. So what do you think I should get tonight?' the boss asked him. "'That's up to you. Are you a clear alcohol man?' I am? Well, I would recommend either gin or rum. Either one are my go-tos when I'm out in the town and have extra lettuce in my pocket. Alright, well, thank you for the recommendation. It's nice to meet you, Anthony Bacchus, 300th Bombardment Group, the boss said, extending his hand to the officer. It's nice to meet you too, Bill Norman, or as my friends call me, Mickey. Wait, did you say 300th Bombardment Group? Mickey questioned by leaning forward in his chair to shake the boss's hand. Yes, sir, the boss responded. But I'm in the 300th, I don't recognize you, Mickey questioned. At this time, the other two officers sitting at the table had begun staring at the two chatting pilots. Is that so? What squadron? the boss asked. 530th, Mickey answered. So were we, the boss replied. Oh, so you guys are the new crew. You guys just flew in, what, three days ago, right? Mickey asked. That's right, the boss responded. That was when both the boss and Mickey saw the other two officers, giving them looks of annoyance. And that was when Mickey responded. Well, how about that? We'll chat some more later, I'm sure. You enjoy yourself tonight. Gin or rum, you won't go wrong. Welcome to Thurlow, Mickey finished. Alright, sounds good. Thank you, Mickey, the boss said with a huge grin on his face as he walked up to the empty seat across from Jack with his back to the bar. You making friends already? Jack asked. Of course. You know me well enough to know that anywhere I go, I always make a friend, the boss said, digging into his pocket to grab a cigarette. And sometimes enemies, Jack retorted. And sometimes enemies, yeah, but that's only because they're intimidated by first glance. Intimidated or scared, Jack asked with a smile on his face. Is there a difference? The boss questioned. Intimidated is being overawed or uncomfortably humbled by someone's presence, Jack began to explain. Yep, that one the boss said lighting up a cigarette whatever lie makes you happy i guess jack joked again before he too dug in his pocket for a cigarette after the two men sat in silence for a moment jack then spoke up where uh where do you think andy and rosie made it to beats me i still can't believe andy came with us five days of being cooped up with him i could have used a break The boss responded, looking bothered as he wiped his hands across the wooden table and then rubbed his hands together. I agree. I'm starting to lose patience for that kid, Jack shot back. A kid he is. I swear sometimes I believe that the army does in fact make mistakes when they let someone like him in, the boss commented. How long until our roommates kick the crap out of him? Jack joked with a smile gleaning on his face. Oh, easily one more week. He already seems to hate us, Andy the most, the boss said, lighting up a cigarette. You know, that's true. You know, if they do, most of us won't blame him. But I think Rosie will just come to Andy's defense just so he can have a justified reason for punching Jameson in the face. Jameson, is that the Navigator? The Boston College guy? The boss asked. Yeah, I don't know why, though. Rosie just hates him, Jack said. I frankly don't like them either. They act like because they've flown a dozen missions, that means that they're our god or something for us all to worship them, the boss commented. Yeah, they're all real assholes if you ask me, Jack added. The two men sat in silence for a few more moments again before the boss blurted out, You know, I was so busy socializing I completely forgot to get a drink. You want one? I'll buy. Sure, a pint of beer for me, Jack responded. Beer? Are you sure you don't want something more stiff? The boss asked as he slowly got up from his chair. I'm sure I'm not in a spirit mood tonight, Jack answered. Oh, well, suit yourself then, the boss said as he turned around and went up to the bar. Moments later, the boss arrived back at the table with a pint glass of light brown ale and a crystal glass of a caramel-colored liquid. I hope you like warm and bitter, the boss commented as he slid the pint glass towards Jack. Taking a sip of the beer and giving a slight snicker, Jack responded, On a night such as tonight, I'm quite okay with warm and bitter. The boss didn't respond, but instead took a sip off of his drink, before he opened his lips almost to a wide grin, exposing his teeth and breathed in deeply. Once he did, he let out a huge sigh of relief before he angled his chair, perched his legs on top of the chair that was to his left and to Jack's right. Jack, noticing how comfortable the boss looked, asked him, Comfy? As though I were at home. Although if I were at home, I'd be at a bar and at a pub, wearing normal clothes, not this itchy boy uniform, and I'd be drinking good old American beer, not this Scottish antifreeze. "'I thought the guy told you to try the rum or the gin tonight?' Jack asked, giving off a look of confusion as he tapped his cigarette over the ashtray. "'I don't like either one, to be honest with you. I'd rather try the whiskey, but, as I'm now discovering, Irish whiskey, which I love, and Scottish whiskey, which I've never tried— are nothing alike. At least this stuff isn't. The boss explained as he took off his hat and put it on the table in front of him. What kind is it? Jack asked. I don't know. It's got a green label on the bottle and the Brit behind the bar told me that it was from Scotland and told me that they haven't had Irish whiskey here since the summer. I'm sure the U-boats are responsible for that too. The boss jabbed. Yeah, those pesty U-boats. I'm sure Rosie will love it though. Jack commented. It's possible. I'll give it to him and see what he thinks, the boss said. As Jack was getting ready to say something in return, the front door of the pub flew open, and a tall, broad-shouldered man with a barrel chest and short, dark, curly hair walked in. The man was 22-year-old 2nd Lieutenant Andrew Moreland of Charlotte, North Carolina. Andrew, or as he was known as Andy, had a sad and rough upbringing. At the age of nine, he was told that his father had been killed while working at the lumber mill not too far from his house. The gruesome death left the family with no physical body to mourn over and to bury, and because of that, his family never felt closure. Andy and his mother then moved to Charlotte where his mother worked at a local hospital and would often bring her only son with her to help clean the bedsheets. It was during this time that Andy became very close with his mom and the two have had a strong bond ever since. When Andy was 17, he went off to college at Yale and graduated at the top of his class. While attending college, he found out that his uncle, who was a banker in Asheville, had passed away, and Andy inherited $9,000 from his uncle. He celebrated by buying him and his mother a house close to the college, After graduation, he volunteered for the United States Army Air Corps because he felt like it was safer than being an infantryman or a seaman. In the spring of 1943, while Andy was at basic training, he met his bunkmate, the Boss. Almost a year later, the two men were brought together again in Savannah, Georgia, when he was assigned to the Boss's crew. Andy looked around the room before spotting the Boss and Jack, and then began walking towards them. The boss and Jack both took in deep breaths and caved in their shoulders before giving each other a look of regret. Andy walked in with his head hung low, a counterfeit strut to his walk, and his uniform looked like it was a tad too small for his large build. He stood at about six feet tall and looked like he weighed 220 pounds. Taking his large hands... Andy grabbed the back of the chair that sat between Jack and the boss and pulled it out so far that it hit the table of the three officers who were sitting left of their table. Much of the other officers' shock and frustration, Andy didn't seem to notice before he sat down, shoved himself under the table, and put his elbows and arms on top of the table. Looking up, he said softly to the boss, Hello. Hi, Andy. The boss begrudgingly muttered, What's wrong? You guys look like you just heard some bad news, Andy asked. No, you just missed it. We were sitting here having a nice moment of silence before some hemorrhoid walked in and ruined it all, Jack commented before taking another sip of his beer. Jack could see that the boss was shooting him a look that he knew meant that he was already going too far with Andy. Really? Who was it? Andy asked. Are you serious? Jack asked before feeling a kick under the table, which he knew came from the boss. "'Never mind him. He's had a few glasses of beer too many. Where's Rosie?' the boss asked trying to quickly change subjects. "'He was right behind me!' Andy muttered looking over his right shoulder at the front door which was still open. Just as the boss was about to ask Andy to close the door, Rosie walked in the room with a lit cigarette in his mouth. Isaac Rosenthal, also known as Rosie, was an average height man with short black semi-wavy hair which was combed to the side under his hat. He walked with a slow, relaxed strut, shoulders pulled back and head held high. He had a thick brow which was expressed more with his thick black eyebrows. He also had a wide face and a wide pointed nose and a strong, defined chin. Hailing from the heart of Brooklyn, New York, Rosie came from a well-known family. His father, Benjamin, owned and operated a jewelry shop on New York Avenue and had become a very popular establishment in the local area. When Rosie was 13, he began playing basketball and became so good at it that he was the captain of his basketball team both his sophomore year and his senior year of high school. He even played on the team at Cornell University where he went to school for mathematics. Rosie's temperament was the opposite of his three contemporaries. At first glance, he was a quiet, soft-spoken, sarcastic, shy, and reserved man. His father would always compare Rosie to the lions at the Brooklyn Zoo, since while they were in the cage, they looked and seemed so tame, docile, and harmless, but once they were let out of the cage, as he would say, quote, God help anyone who got in their way. This quality was something that Rosie was able to work out and express while he was on the basketball court, but it was a quality that haunted him off the court. Rosie closed the door behind him and made his way over to Jack, the boss, and Andy. Once he righted the table, the boss took his feet off the chair and sat up forward. Rosie calmly moved the chair out from under the table and sat down, keeping his almost perfect posture as he pulled himself under the table. Hi, Rosie, the boss said. Hello, boss. Rosie muttered as he took his cigarette out of his mouth and tapped it over the ashtray. He took his Army Air Corps officer hat off and set it on the table in front of him jack followed by putting his hat on the table and soon andy did the same you thirsty We got rum and gin here jack asked gin or rum rosie repeated or this uh scottish whiskey the boss commented lifting up his glass and offering rosie to take a sip looking at the glass rosie nodded his head and then said well that looks good scottish you say yeah it's whatever the brit behind the bar gave me I just asked for Irish whiskey, and he said this is all that they had. Either that or the British whiskey, the boss responded. British whiskey, huh? Well, if that's what they have, then I guess I'll have a glass. Andy, go get some drinks, Rosie commanded. Go get it yourself, Andy shouted, raising his hand in the direction of the bar. Now why would I do that when you're sitting right here, Rosie commented. Andy, the least you can do is buy the man a drink after he fixed your bike earlier, the boss remarked. Big deal. It wasn't like he broke his back over it, Andy fired back. Jeez, just go get the man a drink, Jack aggressively hurled. Andy looked stunned and offended at the conversation. He sat still and didn't say anything for a few moments before the boss said to him, Just go. Andy sighed before he stood up, pushing his chair so far that it slammed into the table that was behind him. As it did, two of the three officers who were sitting at that table stood up, and one of them confronted Andy by standing in front of him and looking at him right in his eye. I'm getting real tired of you assholes, the officer said, grabbing Andy's collar. The boss and Rosie stood up, and the boss put his hand on the officer's shoulder and softly said to him, Hey, 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 hey. look, you're sorry. There's no need to scuff up your knuckles tonight. I'm not sorry, Andy defended. The boss made direct eye contact with Andy and said to him, Andy, shut up. This is not the time to get noble. The officer let go of Andy's collar, and he looked at the boss and said to him, Is he with you? Yeah, he's my navigator. Anthony Bacchus, pilot 300th Bombardment Group, the boss said, extending his hand to the officer. The officer looked down at the boss's hand, and instead of shaking it, looked back up and said to him, Keep your navigator in check. After he said this, the two officers went back to their table and sat down. The boss and Andy both stared at each other for a few moments before the boss said, "'Sit the hell down, Andy. I'll get the drinks, but you're paying.'" Reaching into his pocket to grab the money, Andy said, "'Okay, well, can you get me—you're going to get whatever I give you. I just saved your ass,' the boss said with a tone of disdain and anger. "'Goy!' Rosie exclaimed. "'Just sit down, please.'" I rode halfway across England to get you here, and I'm not about to get tossed out and have to walk all the way back. Andy, don't ruin this night for us, please. This is our first night out," Jack commented. Andy looked stunned and rocked by the situation and handed the boss a pound note from his pocket and quietly sat down, this time being actively aware of his surroundings. The boss turned around and went up to the bar. Wanting to change subjects and break the awkward silence, Jack grabbed another cigarette, lit it, and proceeded to ask Rosie. "'So what do you think of our new bunkmates?' "'To be honest, I don't like them. "'What's the pilot's name? Is it, uh, Gabe?' "'Rosie asked as he grabbed the boss's glass of whiskey "'and proceeded to take a sip of it. "'Yeah, it's Gabriel Blue, I think,' Jack confirmed. "'The entire time the men talked, "'Andy stared heavily into the center of the table, "'seeming to be completely zoned out. "'He's a bit of a, what do you call it, an asshole,' "'Rosie exclaimed before taking a sip of the boss's whiskey.' Which was followed by a disgusted face reaction rosie sat the glass down and trying to get past the bad taste continued you know the amount of times that he and his navigator have gotten up early in the morning and talked to one another at full volume pisses me off you know they've done it nearly every morning that we've been here how do you know he's his navigator andy asked i can tell you navigators all have this weird aura around you rosie sarcastically commented We do not, Andy disputed. Oh, yes, you do. You just don't know it because you're, well, you're a navigator. But trust me, everyone who has ever dealt with you, Andy, knows that you are, in fact, a navigator. Jack, do I? Andy began to ask, but then was cut off by Jack who butted in. I am the last guy you want to ask that question to right now, Andy. Well, shit, you know, if I knew the entire night was going to be about this, Andy began to say what was cut off, but this time it was from the boss who arrived back at the table with a pint glass of beer in one hand and a short glass of whiskey in the other. He sat both drinks down and slid the beer over to Andy, whose face lit up when he went to take a sip. He then slid the short glass of whiskey over to Rosie before he turned around and went back up to the bar to grab another drink. Once the boss returned with a pint-sized glass of beer, Andy took notice and asked him, what, beer too? You know you're not supposed to mix liquors. The boss's face cocked to the side and leaned forward as he ankled his smile towards Andy. Well, you know what they say, the boss asked. What? Andy responded. If it's free, it's good enough for me, the boss responded, speaking with a smile. Oh, what, he gave you that beer for free? Andy asked. No, you dunce. He's saying that you paid for his beer, therefore he doesn't care. "'Notice how he didn't give you any change back?' Jack spoke up. Looking even more offended and utterly upset, Andy responded, "'I didn't know he was being serious. I don't know how much beers are here. You know, it's so nice of you to help yourself to my money.'" The boss didn't even let Andy finish his final word before he spoke up and said, "'Any other human being would have bought a drink to the man who saved him from getting his face beaten in by another officer.'" "'Oh, you know what? Drink the damn beer. I'm going back to base. I'd rather drink alone there at the officer's club anyways.'" Andy said sliding his beard to the center of the table and then got up taking notice of where his chair was. Don't get sore Andy. You're acting like a child. Rosie called out. Don't talk to me like you're my parent. Andy shouted as he was on his way out the door. Both the boss and Jack didn't say anything further but let Andy walk out the door. The chatter within the room came to a grinding halt as everyone stared at the two men sitting at the table. After a few moments Rosie spoke up and said What, does everyone want to give their two cents? Then people out of nervousness began talking to each other again. No, I didn't think so. Rosie fixed his eyes at the boss and said to him, You know, if I had to be with that guy for 25 missions, I might as well ask the Jerrys to take me out. Or, you know what, I might just bail out and go into hiding. Yeah, I honestly cannot imagine sharing a compartment of plane with him, the boss said as Jack nodded his head in agreement. The boss continued his point by saying, You know, I would normally ask for another navigator, but I'm scared to death that he's going to get sent to another crew that actually will kill him before the Huns do. Both Jack and Rosie verbally agreed before the boss continued his point. I mean, am I crazy or something? I just want to know. The boss was then cut off by the officer sitting at the table next to them, who he was talking to earlier. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but your guy, the loud one, is he okay? Okay. Yeah, he's, um, well, you're not exactly sure what's wrong with him. The army obviously didn't seem to know either, the boss commented, trying to make light of the awkward situation. Well, I have a bachelor's in psychology. I can tell you what's wrong with him, Mickey pointed out before taking one last huge sip of his remaining beer in his glass. Is that so? Come tell us then, the boss commented. Rosie looked confused at the man's offer. Here, I'll sit and drink with you guys. That beer looks mighty good, the man said, getting up from the chair before saying final words to the other two men sitting at the table. Mickey arrived at the empty chair where Andy was sitting and pushed himself into that table, grabbing the beer and slid it towards him. So I met this guy earlier, Mickey commented, pointing to the boss, and then continued. But who do I owe this wonderful pleasure at meeting? This here is my pilot, Lieutenant Jack Miller, and this here is my bombardier, Lieutenant Isaac Rosenthal, but you can call him Rosie. As the boss introduced them, both Jack and Rosie shook the man's hand and rested back in their chairs. "'And you are?' Rosie asked. "'Oh, sorry, Lieutenant Bill Norman, but everyone seems to call me Mickey.' "'Why's that?' Rosie asked. "'What, Mickey?' "'Well, it's sort of a funny story. See I love Mickey Mouse, and I wanted to name her plane Mickey's Revenge, but before we could even get the plane off the ground, another crew took it up and crashed the damn thing. So ever since then, everyone calls me Mickey,' Mickey explained. Wait, so you're saying someone else flew your plane and then crashed it, the boss asked, sounding stunned. Yeah, we weren't even here for two days, and another crew from my squadron, who were without a plane, were assigned to our brand new one, and they collided over assembly, explained Mickey. You're kidding, the boss asked, giving a short chuckle of disbelief, and then shot a glance at both Jack and Rosie, who both looked stunned at the story as well. It actually happens more often than you think. Oh, before I forget... "'What hut are you guys in? i was trying to remember who your bunkmates are,' Mickey asked. "'299,' said Jack. "'Okay, yeah, 299. We're just across from you guys. We're in hut 290. You guys are in that little circle section, right?' Mickey asked. "'Yeah, the grassy one with the table, right?' asked Jack. "'Yep, that's the one. Yeah, if you're standing outside your hut door and you look straight across, you'd be looking at our hut. So then that means that you're bunking with Captain Blue then, right?' Yeah, we were just talking about him, actually, Jack said, looking over at Rosie. Yeah, he's quite the character, I tell you that. We call him Hawkeye because of his uh, piercing eyes. I flew with him on as a replacement pilot for him once on a mission to Emden. He had no patience or tolerance for any mistakes or fumbles, Mickey explained. As Mickey talked, Jack thought it was odd that Mickey couldn't seem to keep eye contact for more than a few seconds or so. When Mickey would go to talk, his eyes would focus on the area around a person's face, but hardly ever looked at a person's face. How many missions do you have under your belt? The boss asked as Mickey took a cup of his beer. Well, as of yesterday, I've flown a total of eight. However, I think a majority of our crew have flown something like five or six. We were just low on pilots during big weeks, so I ended up flying back to back missions that week, and so did my pilot before he got flack in his ass. Flack in his ass? Rosie asked with a slight smile in his tone. Yeah, he was flying with the rookie crew on a mission to, uh, I think Augsburg? I don't know, but it was a long haul. I can tell you that. But anyways, when we came back, I saw them putting him on a medical jeep, and that was when he told me that over the target, a piece of shrapnel about the size of a dime or so went right up through his ass cheeks. Dear Lord, is he going to be out for long? The boss asked. No, 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 I think in a week or so he should be back. But anyways the guy is he in your crew mickey asked changing topics well he's currently our navigator the boss replied is he good i'm talking about in the sky mickey asked he is i'll give him that he took us all the way across the pond without incident the boss responded that's good the worst thing a crew can have is a shitty navigator i've seen a lot of planes go down because of some damn navigator that lost course and couldn't tell the difference between the french coast and the english coast "'explained Mickey. "'Does that happen a lot?' "'the boss asked, sounding concerned. "'I've seen it happen twice so far. "'One was minor, but the other one was real bad. "'We ended up going through two thick flak fields "'because the lead navigator lost his heading "'and didn't notice for 15 minutes,' Mickey expounded. "'15 minutes? "'Holy cow, that's quite some time!' "'the boss commented. "'Yeah, but anyways, your navigator, "'I would bet all the money in my pocket "'that he's a trust fund kid.' Mickey guessed as he crossed his legs under the table. You're close. You got all of that from just watching him for five minutes? Jack asked. No, I just took a guess. To be honest, I just didn't want to sit over there with those two happy-glucky bags of fun. Mickey kidded, using his thumb to point to the two men he was sitting with earlier. Looking at the two men, Jack leaned in towards Mickey and asked him, Who are those guys? Well, the one who almost fought your navigators, Captain Benjamin Harold. He's a pilot in our group's five twenty eighth squadron, and he might just have the best name for a plane I've ever heard. Mickey commented before he took a big gulp of his beer. What's that? Jack asked. Give me a yank. Both the boss and Jack gave a slight chuckle, but Rosie didn't seem amused. So clever, right? Have you guys named your plane yet? Mickey asked. We have, actually. We've named it Load of Bull. The boss dramatically presented, using his hand to glide across as if he was revealing the words in front of him. Load of Bull, that's actually a swell name. Have you guys painted it yet? Mickey asked. We have. Our crew chief is actually really good at painting and he did our artwork for us, the boss explained. What's his name? Mickey asked. Bruce. Uh, he's a short, stocky guy, scruffy face, rough filly accent, the boss described. Yeah, sorry not ringing any bells. I'm sure I've seen them around, I just don't know him. Is he good? You guys liking him? Mickey asked. Oh yeah, he's been awesome. He only charged us five packs of cigarettes for the nose art. I thought that was pretty generous, Jack butted in. Yeah, that was. A friend of ours had his done for 30 bucks, said Mickey. Oh really? Wow, okay, so I guess we really did get a good deal, the boss commented with a smile on his face. You didn't think you got a good deal? Mickey asked. The boss paused and gave a big grin and then said, I was the one out four packs of smokes. Both the boss and Mickey chuckled, and that was when Jack again butted in and said, tell him why though, tell him why you had to fork up four of the five packs of cigarettes. The boss smiled at Mickey, then leaned forward and said, the name was my idea, and I had to convince the rest of the crew, and I said that if they picked my idea, I would pay the price. Well, who gave the other pack of cigarettes? Mickey asked. Andy did. He thought if he gave up a pack of smokes that the boss would take more of a liking to him. I'd tell you that guy has problems, Rosie spoke up. I see. Were the rest of your crew okay with the name? Mickey asked. Just as the boss was getting ready to speak, Jack spoke up again saying, Most of them liked my idea. Even Rosie here liked my idea. What was it? Mickey asked. The boss didn't look amused. In fact, he even looked irritated. "Bomboozled," Jack declared. That's not bad. I like it, Mickey said. You're full of it, so you don't have to fib, the boss commented back. They did like it, but tell it how you want to. The plane's named after your idea anyways, Jack noted. They all warmed up to it, the boss confirmed. Speaking of which, where are your guys tonight? Mickey asked. The boss paused, looked at Jack, and just shrugged his shoulders and then grabbed his beer glass and before chugging it said, I'm sure they're at some pub tonight living it up. Do you love vintage Warbirds? Do you love drinking good coffee? Would you love to be able to help keep Warbirds in the sky by just drinking coffee every single morning? Well, believe it or not, you can by going to www.warbirdcoffeecompany.com and signing up for a bag of great tasting, fresh roasted coffee. Guys, this is a veteran owned and operated business that I discovered back in July. Let me tell you something. I drink so much of the stuff that you could say that Snafu runs off of Warbird Coffee Company. These guys partner up with operators and museums, and for every bag of coffee sold, they give back to their partners to help keep the memory of the greatest generation alive. They're available for everyone living in the United States and Great Britain. If you want to find out more about who they are and what they do, go to one of their social media pages by just searching up Warbird Coffee Company. You can get 15% off your first order by visiting and subscribing to their website, www.warbirdcoffeecompany.com. Mills sat hunched over his bed with a book on his lap and a piece of paper over the cover. With a pencil in hand, he glided it over the piece of paper with care and precision. Gregory Miller, also known as Mills, stood at 5 foot 8 inches tall, weighed 185 pounds, and had two days worth of facial hair growth covering his jawline and upper lip. He had dark brown hair, which was combed off to the side with a part going down the left side of his head. Growing up in Lansing, Michigan, to a veteran of the First World War, Mills had dreamed of being able to fight on the front lines like his father. Having worked at the factories of the REO Motor Company for nearly three years, he and his brother decided that Pearl Harbor was plenty of enough reasons to chase after their dreams of serving in the military. So at the age of 22 years old, he and his brother Vincent joined the Army Air Corps. However, after an accident during gunnery training... Mills' training was set back nearly seven months. Mills was now 24 years old, making him one of the oldest members of his crew. Sitting next to Mills on his bed was Thomas Mathis, or as he was known as, Tommy. Tommy was born in Wichita, Kansas, as the oldest of what became five brothers. When he was three years old, his father lost his job in Wichita and got a job offer from his brother-in-law, who lived in New Orleans, Louisiana, and worked for the Domino Sugar Factory there. In the months leading up to Tommy's little brother, Robbie, being born, the family moved to New Orleans, where his family still lives. The thing that made Tommy stand out among his peers was that Tommy looked all too young to be in the military, and that's because he was. At only 18 years old, Tommy had lied about his age when he joined the army at just 16 years old. Tommy stood at five foot five inches tall, had a wide, bobbled nose, a big smile, and a youthful glimmer in his eye. He watched Mills's hand and locked in on what Mills was drawing. Standing behind the two men was a skinny, brown haired kid with a faint five o'clock shadow. He stood at five foot six inches tall and weighed a mere 145 pounds. He was only 19 years old and had crystal blue eyes. His name was Bill Hilliard and went by the childhood nickname Beans. Beans was a native of Ashland, Wisconsin. His father owned a grocery store in Ashland, and Beans got his name from an incident that occurred when he was four years old. Beans went to work with his dad and was found in one of the aisles of the grocery store, eating mouthfuls of beans from a can that he had grabbed off the shelf and bashed open, thus giving him the nickname. At the age of 19 years old, Beans is the second youngest member of the crew, having joined up the day he turned 18 years old. All right, they'll mess us up now, Beans said, looking over Mills' shoulder to see what he was drawing as well. Mills turned his head and looked at Beans and replied, Will you shut it? Beans, don't you have to go bore someone instead of just standing here watching him? Tommy commented, Well, hold on there. What are you doing? Beans interrogated. I'm giving Mills emotional support. I'm doing so by keeping quiet and letting him do his thing, Tommy added. Well, both of you, just get out of here if you can't be quiet. This is serious stuff here, Mills exclaimed. I know it is, Bean stated. That's why I want to make sure that it's, you know, right. What the hell are you guys doing over there? Came a voice from across the room. The room that they were in was one of many enlisted men's Quonset huts located at the southern end of the airfield. A Kwanzid hut is a half cylinder structure covered with corrugated green drab painted metal. On one end of the hut was a wooden door, and on both sides of the door were two metal windows. The hut was a standard medium sized hut, measuring at thirty feet long and fourteen feet wide at its base. The coal floor was laid with concrete, which were illuminated by the six metal dome ceiling lights which ran the length of the room. There were two coal furnaces spaced out twelve feet from each end of the hut, With a coal scuttle next to each one. The heat from the furnace was just hot enough to bring the temperature inside of the hut to a mere 67 degrees. However, due to the thin metal walls not being well insulated, in some spots a cold draft could be felt, stopping the hut from ever being above 70 degrees at nighttime. The room was divided into two sections, with the boys from the boss's crew sleeping on the right side of the hut and the men from another crew sleeping on the left side of the hut. The man who spoke up was sitting on his bed, which was placed at the left of the front door. He was wearing long white thermal underwear and thick wool green socks. Art, that's what we're doing over here, Mills called out. Art, what kind of art are you doing over there? The man called out. Just mind your business, Jodite, Mills yelled over. Yeah, mind your business, Jodite, Beans repeated. The man known as Jodai was a blonde-headed, tall, athletic-built young man who felt like the big brother to the rookie crew. His leather jacket, which hung on the metal hanger besides his bed, had five yellow bombs painted along the shoulders, meaning he had flown five successful missions. You replacement greenies are starting to get on my last nerve, Jodai said, getting up from his bed, and began walking over to where the three men were sitting. All three of them were wearing their Green Army A-4 fatigue suits. These were normally worn for low-altitude missions or served as an extra layer of warm clothing for their high-altitude missions. However, they also served as perfect clothes to sleep in, since they were made of a thick wool. Mills' bed was in the middle of the room, and as Jodite walked closer to the three men, Jodite could see two more boys who belonged to the boss's crew. The first one, who was laying on his bed behind Mills, Tommy and Beans, was a quiet bookworm known as Skimpy. Skimpy, or as his parents named him, Charles Knight, was born and raised on a vegetable farm in Waterloo, Iowa. Having no desire to continue the family farm when he got older, Skimpy began working at a local radio repair shop in downtown Waterloo. His experience in radios is what led him to become a radio operator in the 8th Air Force and got him assigned to the boss's crew. He got his name Skimpy from his thin, brittle frame. He had dark hair, tan skin complexion, bushy dark eyebrows, thin lips, and a nervous energy to him. Skimpy was lying on his stomach at the foot of his bed with the book laying on top of his pillow. He used his bookmark, which was a remnant of a movie ticket, to cover the line underneath the one he was reading. Good book? Jody asked. Yeah, I guess, Skimpy replied. Tommy then turned around to see what Skimpy was doing, and after doing so, commented, He's always reading something. You're just mad because you can't read, Tommy, Jody commented as he stood behind Tommy and Mills. Looking down at Mills' lap, he saw what they were all looking at. "'You call that art?' Jodite mocked. "'What, you think you can do better, Jodite?' shouted Mills as he lifted up his head and stopped etching. Jodite bent down, ripped the paper out from under Mills's hand. Mills quickly got up and tried to grab it, but because Jodite was nearly six feet tall and had longer arms, he lifted the paper up above his head to protect it from Mills' hands. "'Oh, come on, give it back! You're going to ruin it!' Mills yelled out with Beans following suit. "'Yeah, come on, don't ruin the art! It's gorgeous!' Jodite, with a smile on his face, showed the picture to the three men. The hand-drawn picture was that of a long-haired woman dressed in a tight woman's swimsuit and high heels. She had a half-drawn smile, long legs, and giant breasts. This is not art, Jodite yelled as Mills snapped it out of his hands. It is to us, Mills retorted. Who is that supposed to be of anyways, your girl back home? Jodite sarcastically jabbed as he returned back to his bed. No, that's what's-her-name from the hospital. You know, Cheryl, the Blondie, Tommy answered. The who? Jodite asked. You know who we're talking about, Mills called out. I don't, but you gentlemen can keep dreaming because I've never seen any woman on planet Earth that looks anything like that, Jodite added as he sat on his bed. That's because this is our, you know, our interpretation, Tommy commented after sitting back on his bed, which was in front of Mills' bed. That's a big word there. I see someone has been studying, said another voice from the back of the hut. Lying on his stomach at the back of the hut, next to Skimpy's bed, laid Albert Brew, a hotshot kid from Seattle, Washington. Al was the son of a Boeing engineer who helped to design the prototype for what became known as Boeing Model 299, or as it was now known as, the Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress. His father was a strict disciplinarian and grew aggravated at his son's rebellious nature and sent him to a reform school outside of Seattle. There, Al discovered authors such as William Faulkner, Altus Huxley, and Ford Maddox Ford, but the author who captured his attention and interest more than any of them was Ernest Hemingway. By the time Al graduated from Covington Reform School, he had high hopes of becoming the next Ernest Hemingway, and started writing short pieces and sending them to local newspapers. Although none of them ever got published, he was told by a worker at the newspaper that if he wanted to write about things such as war and brotherhood, then he should experience it for himself. So, on his 19th birthday, he joined the Army Air Corps with his high hopes of writing a book about his experiences in wartime. He was lying opposite of Skimpy and was writing in his black-and-white composition notebook on top of his pillow. I can read, Al, Tommy kicked back. Are you sure about that? You don't look old enough to read, died. commented from across the room. The whole time, Skimpy was smirking to himself. I'm 18. 18-year-olds can read, Tommy defended. Yeah, sure you're 18, Al sardonically poked. I am, Tommy defended. You just turned 18, though, didn't you? Mills asked. Shut up, Mills. So what? Who cares? Tommy pompously declared. And so you had to lie about your age to join up, right? Al commented. Again, who cares? Tommy annoyingly shouted. So you could be 14 for all we know. Christ, you look too young for 14. Joe countered. Listen, both of you let up, okay? Tommy requested just before the front door of the hut opened. When it did, all eyes locked onto the four men who walked in. Leading them in was a dark-haired young man with a wide face... Long, squared jaw and chin, pearly white teeth and olive skin. He stood with the shoulders cocked back, chest out, and hands in his pockets. This was William, or Willie, Abram. Willie held the title for the loudest, most rambunctious, robust, and humorous member of the boss's crew. At only 19 years old, Willie acted like he was one of the old Italian mob guys he used to watch come in and out of his mother's restaurant in Chicago, Illinois. His father, Antonio, immigrated from Beirut when he was 10 years old with his family to make a better living. He went to law school and became a defense lawyer in Chicago, a job that gave Willie a lot of privilege in his local Oak Park neighborhood. His mother, Benita, co-owned a family-run Italian restaurant with her sister and brother-in-law. All throughout his childhood, Willie found himself in and out of trouble and in and out of reform schools. When Willie was 16 years old, he nearly got kicked out of school before he found his passion, cars. Willie became obsessed with cars, or any type of motorized vehicle. When he was 17, Willie went to see a movie with a friend, and before the movie began, begun, a war bond advertisement for the Army Air Corps played on the big screen. Seeing how sharp the airman looked, and imagining what he guessed the female response would be over airmen, he joined the Army Air Corps. His love of mechanics served him well as he was assigned to the boss's crew as a flight engineer. Standing behind Willie were three other men from the other crew that they were sharing the hut with. As all four men walked in, the door was shut behind them, and Beans, who had since sat back on his bed, which was at the front of the hut, opposite of Jodite's, asked, "'Did you get it?' Turning around to face Beans, Willie commented, "'Oh, I got it.' It was then that Willie took out his hand from his right-side jacket pocket, and revealed a brown bottle of alcohol. He walked to the center of the room, where Beans, Mills, Tommy, Al, and Skimpy all got up from their beds to meet him there. Willy smelled of Yarnling English cologne and cigar smoke. He wore his leather A2 leather jacket, which had their squadron's logo on the left breast. The picture was of a dinosaur, specifically a T-Rex, riding a bomb. He also wore his perfectly creased khaki pants and polished brown low-quarter Oxford shoes with the shoelaces tied perfectly. Leaning in, he held the bottle of alcohol like it was the Holy Grail. The brown bottle was 22 inches tall and had the cork top and the word Seagram's 7 Crown printed on its yellow and tan label. You got Seagrams? Tommy asked, mispronouncing the name. You mean Seagrams? Al corrected. You sure it's called Seagram's? Tommy asked as he took the bottle off of Willie and held it in his hands like it was a newborn baby. That's how my dad always said it, Al confirmed. What did you have to do to get this? Asked Mills. Oh, wouldn't you like to know? There was a moment of silence before Willie finished. I paid a hefty penny for it. How much? Asked Al. I gave him a British pound and a few shingles or whatever the fuck those things are called. Willie stumbled to say shillings yelled a voice from the other crew oh yeah that shit shillings yeah i gave him a pound and a few shillings for it willie explained that's like what over five american dollars right mills asked you paid all that money to give us a drink tonight asked al sounding shocked that willie would do something so generous willie cocked a smile and began to laugh and then patted al on the shoulder and said to him let's just say i did Willie turned around to sit on his bed, which was between Beans' bed and Tommy's. Once he did, he began to take off his shoes carefully. Al then asked, rolling his eyes, Who paid for it, Willie? Oh, just the idiot who leaves his foot locker unlocked and wallet just shit on the top, Willie responded. Suddenly, one of the men from the opposite side of the hut yelled out, Oh, come on! You took the money from my wallet? Yes, Bruce, I did. And it was to teach you a very valuable lesson. They don't call it a foot arm locker." The man who took the money from was standing over his bed, which was just across the hut from him. He had the profile of a tough, rigid kid with a nasty scar on his left earlobe. Oh, damn it to hell. You know no one locks their footlocker, Bruce yelled back. No, but people don't leave their wallets just shit on top. You know, my grandfather always told me, carelessness always pays. But hey, I'm all about mercy. I'll let you take the first drink, Willie commented mercy boy you stole money from me bruce threatened first of all i'm no boy and second of all i'm willing to give you the first expensive drink take as much as you want willie said lifting up his hands to signal to al to give bruce the bottle nice willie al softly said before he walked over to bruce and gave him the bottle snatching the bottle from him bruce looked over at al and said to him you guys are real asshole thanks for letting the cat out of the bag al sarcastically said turning around to walk back to his bed you're lucky if you get any willie said the man who was sitting on his bed which was to the right of bruce oh you're fine haven't you listened to the britch we're apparently overpaid over over here so apparently we all have plenty to share willie defended bruce took two large sips and then passed it to the blond man sitting next to him the man's name was rob and he was a very quiet serious character None of the men ever bothered talking to him, since he never seemed to have any interest in talking to anybody. After he was done, he gave the bottle to Jodite. As they drank, another man walked in the hut. This guy was short and stocky, had long black messy hair, strong jawline, and had a long pointed nose. He walked in dressed in his thick B3 sheep wool lined brown leather jacket with his matching pants. As he walked in, he noticed the bottle of whiskey that was being passed around. Oh, who got that? asked the man. Willie here bought it on my dime, Bruce said. The man looked over at Willie, who had a slight smirk on his face, and gave out a chuckle. Don't you look at me like that, Schmitty, Willie jabbed. You new guys are unbelievable, Schmitty said as he continued to walk to his bed. Hey, don't judge us by the wrongdoings of one man, Al begged. "'We'll see about that. You guys ain't looking too good,' remarked Schmidty. Schmitty began taking his thick leather flying boots off and then followed by taking his jacket off. "'Did you get a chance to drink again, Prusin?' Schmitty asked the man who was sitting in the bed that was next to his bed. Prusin was the youngest member of the other crew. He was very thin, had fine blonde hair and beady eyes. "'I did. Put some hair on my chest.' Prison said as he began to lie down and get under his bedsheets. "'Did you guys hear about Benny and Mo?' Schmitty asked the group. Willie and the others didn't seem to know who Schmitty was talking about, so they just kept quiet and listened. "'From 531 Squadron?' "'How they both got hit during that last mission to Frankfurt?' asked Joe Dight. "'Yeah, I heard Benny took one to the back of the head. Scrambled them all up,' Bruce added." Yeah, well, uh, I just ran into Perez from his crew. He said that Benny's a drooling mess. So they're sending him away to another hospital tomorrow, Schmidt explained. Damn, muttered Rob. And what about Moe? asked Prusin. Yeah, he, um. Yeah, he didn't make it, Schmidt softly said. Prusin, stunned, sat up in his bed and uttered the words, What? Willie and the others watched as the tone of the room suddenly changed to a much darker, depressing atmosphere. Yeah, he um he passed on this morning, said Schmidty. He damn it, he was a good guy, Bruce softly said. They both were, Jodite said as he then got up, walked to the other end of the hut where Schmidty was standing. Once he arrived at Schmidty's bed, he then extended his arm out to offer Schmidty a drink and said to him I know you were close with Mo. I'm sorry. Schmitty grabbed the bottle and then, with tears in his eyes, he softly muttered, Yeah, well, at least he, um... At least he's out of this shithole. Lucky bastard. Jodite clenched his jaw and patted Schmitty on his back and said to him, I'm in. As Schmitty lifted up the bottle to take a drink, he called out, To the Fallen, I guess. The room fell silent as Willie and the others watched as the five men silently grieved. Back at the Red Lion Inn, the officers were sitting at the table still, but this time, cards riddled the tabletop, along with three empty pint glasses and a few short whiskey glasses were all pushed together at the center of the table. The pub was full of chatter and music was now being played on a record player. Dealing the next round of cards, Rosie asked Mickey. So you, uh, you don't think we're going to fly together on our first mission? It's not likely. New crews usually are split up during their first few missions, and that way they can fly with more experienced crews. Last time we went up, our tail gunner stayed behind, and we got assigned some rookie gunner from another crew. Mickey responded, grabbing the cards Rosie was giving him. That would blow if I had to fly with some combat experienced pilot. Jack commented uh, we're not that bad. Are there assholes? Sure, but I, but I would say 70% of the guys I know and flown missions with are generally nice guys. It's just, you know, you replacements are, well, you're replacing guys who we played poker with, or who we went to London with. It's just hard for them to take a liking to guys who replace their buddies, Mickey added. Now, does that go away after a while? The boss asked as he looked at his two cards. Yeah, for the most part. Usually, after your first ball breaking mission, if you get through that, they pretty much warm up to you pretty quickly, Mickey commented. Well, let's hope our first mission gets us some respect, Jack commented, tapping his knuckles on the table in order to ask for another card. Sliding the card over to him, Mickey asked, So, did you guys get here by Uncle Sam's taxi? What, the troop truck? The boss asked. Yeah, that's what we call it, Mickey responded, sliding in our card over to Rosie. Yeah, you? The boss responded. No, Mr. Cheerful, Mickey said, pointing behind him to Captain Harrison. He's got the pay grade in the cloud to borrow a Jeep, a covered one at that, too. He offered me a ride if I bought him his first drink. Well, that was nice of him, the boss commented. What time will the taxi be back to pick you guys up? Mickey asked. The boss looked at his watch and realized what time it was. His watch read 923. Thank God you said that, we gotta go, the boss said lying down his cards. What, is it close to 2130? Jack asked. Just about. We gotta get back to the drop-off, otherwise we're walking back, the boss commented before he finished the rest of his beer. Rosie and Jack both got up and finished their drinks. Mickey stood up and with a smile on his face said, Well, don't let the cold air take your buzz away. Thanks. I sure hope not. Mickey, thank you so much for BSing with us tonight. You're a swell guy, Jack said, shaking Mickey's hand. Agreed, the boss added as he shook Mickey's hand. Anytime, I'll be looking for you guys tomorrow morning at mess. If you get there early enough, I'll save you a seat, said Mickey as he shook Rosie's hand and then patted him on his shoulder. The three men said their final goodbyes before they exited the pub and walked to the drop-off spot, which was about 400 yards from the Red Lion Inn, in front of the Strumner Village Hall building. Back at the base, the three men entered at the front of the hut, and the first thing that they saw was that the hut was empty and cold, since nobody had fed the furnaces since earlier that day. Their hut looked almost identical to the one that the enlisted men had. The only difference was, instead of six beds being on each side of the hut, each side had four pairs of beds with wooden crates serving as nightstands, adorned with lamps and ashtrays. Two wooden chairs sat in the middle of the room, dividing the four beds at the front of the hut from the ones in the back of the hut. A total of eight beds looked perfectly fixed, sheets and all left untouched since this morning. Jack was shocked that Andy wasn't lying in his bed. Where do you guys think Andy made it to? Jack asked as he walked up to his bed, which sat to the left of the front door and up against the front of the hut. I guess he must still be at the officers' club, Rosie commented as he sat down on his bed, which was next to Jack's. Man, what a night, right? I like Mickey, Jack commented as he too sat on his bed and began taking his shoes off. I do too. He's a good guy. A little weird, but good, the boss commented, obviously mocking Mickey. The boss walked over to his bed, which was across from Rosie's and Caddy Corner from Jack's. The three men chuckled to themselves for a moment before the front door of the hut flew open and Captain Blue and Lieutenant Jameson walked in with the man clearly intoxicated being dragged between them. The man had both of his arms around the necks of the two men who were carrying him. His feet dragged over the threshold of the door. The man they were carrying was Andy. The two men dragged Andy to his bed, which luckily was next to the door to the right side, across from Jack. They threw Andy onto his bed, and as they did, two other men walked into the hut. What happened? The boss asked after watching Andy's body being flung into the bed. He's drunk. Can't you see that? Jameson snarled. Yes, I can see that. But what happened to him? The boss asked again. The four men he was talking to were all wearing their A2 leather jackets, with the squadron logo on the front. They all walked towards their beds. Their plane's name and art was visible on the back. The words, The All-American, was painted in a red, blue, black cursive-style font, along with a painted picture of a red, white, and blue soldier from the Revolutionary War. They each had 12 to 15 yellow-painted bombs on the bottom of their jackets. He just began drinking like a madman when he got there, and He passed out by the bar, and we brought him back. You're welcome, Captain Blue commented. Yeah, you're welcome. And don't forget to add coal to your furnace tonight. You guys keep forgetting to refill yours, and during the middle of the night, the damn hut is freezing by morning time, yelled Lieutenant Smith. All right, all right, we won't, the boss said before the men all softly and quietly changed into their sleeping attire, said final words before they all got under their sheets, fell asleep for the night. The boss was jolted awake by the sound of the storm door of the hut being slammed shut. He looked up and saw a man walking in with a flashlight in his hand. The man walked towards the back of the hut and shined a light in Captain Blue's eyes and then turned on his lamp. Captain Blue, you've been selected to fly a mission today, along with Peck, Jameson, and Smith. Breakfast at 0600, briefing at 0645, and take off at 0730. Good luck today, gentlemen. The man said as he walked to the other men and then turned on their lamps and giving them a forceful nudge "Where to?" Captain Blue asked. "That question hasn't worked in 2 months, captain. It's not going to work now. Show up at the briefing if you want to know." The man said as he exited the hut. The boss looked over at Andy who was still lying on the top of his bed exactly how Captain Blue had laid him hours before. The boss looked at his watch and saw that it was 5:48 in the morning. Then the boss looked across the hut at Jack and Rosie, who were also awake and alert. "'Damn it! Why can't we sleep in while they fly our mission for us?' Peck mumbled as he cupped his face in his hands. "'That doesn't sound like too bad of an idea,' replied Jameson, who spoke at a loud volume. "'I would love to, but Uncle Sam is having a real tough mission for them. I could feel it,' Captain Blue snarled, looking at the boss's direction. "'Leave us alone!' And talk more quietly, you goyim! Rosie yelled. Captain Blue and the rest of the officers were now up, out of their beds, and were getting dressed. That was when Blue walked over to the front of the hut and flipped on the light switch that turned on the ceiling lights. There, that's better. Oh, am I disturbing your sleep? I'm sorry. We'll be sure to take our time. Blue commented as he proceeded to walk back to his area of the hut. The boss rolled back over in his bed and put his face in the pillow and tried to ignore the loud chatter Captain Blue and his men were causing. A few hours later, the boss and the three others had woken up and were gathering their things and getting ready to head to the showers. Andy, who was still hung over, saw a white piece of paper laying in the middle of Captain Blue's section of the hut. He threw his bag on top of his bed and proceeded to walk over to it and pick it up. The boss was putting his socks in his bag when he saw Andy picking up the piece of paper. What are you doing, Andy? The boss asked. Just looking. Andy responded, standing back up and opening the piece of paper. Andy, it's not yours. Don't read it. Jack yelled out as he stood in front of the main door, waiting for the boss and Rosie to finish getting ready. Andy looked at the piece of paper and realized that it was a letter. The top of the letter read, My dearest brother. That was when he said with an honorary grin appearing on his face. "'Guys, this is a letter from Blue's sister.' "'So what? Leave it on his bed. I'm sure he just fell out of his pocket,' Rosie called out. "'No, you fellows don't realize the amount of blackmail we could have on him,' Andy responded, his eyes skimming the letter. That's when the boss spoke up again by saying, "'Andy, whatever you think that means, trust me. It's not going to happen. Blue's crew is just hazing us because we're the new guys.' I'm sure he's going to... Listen to this, Andy interrupted, showing the boss he wasn't listening. The boss rolled his eyes and proceeded to listen to what Andy found on the piece of paper. My dearest brother, mom waits every day for the mail to come, thinking a letter from you was going to come. However, nothing ever comes. Gabriel, why? Andy paused reading and lifted up his head and seeing the boss, Jack, and Rosie looking at him with a look of disdain but Andy didn't think they were aiming their looks at him. This guy's such an asshole, he doesn't even write to his own mother. Jesus, what a piece of work, Andy commented before he continued reading. Last we heard from you, you worried us all. Have you begun to like your crew members? Are you still feeling homesick? Is that why you're not writing? Please, Gabe, let us know that you're still alive and that we're not going to get a surprise telegram from the War Department. As Andy continued to read... The boss walked over to Andy and snatched the letter out from his hands. "'Hey, come on! I was enjoying that!' Andy yelled. "'Were you dropped on your head or something when you were a kid?' The boss asked, folding the letter back up and putting it under Blue's pillow. "'What kind of hell of a question is that?' "'No, I wasn't. What are you implying?' The boss walked back up to Andy and scolded him by saying, "'Andy, you have no business reading another man's personal letters. "'Jesus!' You nearly ruined our first night off the base last night, and you went to the officers club and got so drunk that that, quote, asshole you were just bitching about had to drag you all the way back here and laid you back in your bed. Well, he threw me, first of all, Andy interjected. Andy, enough, the boss yelled back. Andy, you need to seriously think before you speak and do things. I'm beginning to think that Blue hates us because you make us all look like a bunch of dumb rookies, Rosie commented. Come on, Andy, you're an adult. Act like it, the boss commented before he walked towards his bed, grabbed his bag, and then walked out of the hut with Jack and Rosie leaving and embarrassed Andy standing in the middle of the hut. Later that afternoon, the men were all gathered around the airfield to watch the planes return from their mission. The group was sent to bomb a railroad junction in Belgium, and most of the men acted like they were expecting a good return today. The boss stood by the control tower, a few hundred feet in front of the two main aircraft hangars on the base. The planes were spotted over the horizon. The boss turned around to see Jack standing next to him, smoking a cigarette. I heard this was a milk run, the boss said to Jack. I heard that too this morning, replied Jack. Wish I had a pair of binoculars so I could see all the nose art and all the planes coming in, the boss commented. Doesn't Andy have a pair in his footlocker? We should have brought it, Jack confessed. Yeah, we should have. I doubt he's going to be using them, remarked the boss. Yeah, I bet he's still sleeping. He was when I was there a few hours ago. That hungover must have been a lot worse than he thought. I could hop on the bike and ride back to the hut and grab them. It will take me ten minutes tops, Jack asked. If you want to, affirmed the boss. Okay, I'll be right back then, Jack said as he ran over to the bike, which lay in the grass next to the perimeter track. He got on his bike and pedaled as hard as he could and made his way back to their hut. As he did, he could hear the sounds of engines getting closer and closer. Jack then turned to his right and entered into the small round row of huts where his hut was located. Arriving at his hut, he quickly hopped off the bike and ran toward the front door of the hut and opened it. Expecting to see Andy, he yelled, Are you going to sleep here all day? Jack was stunned by what he was seeing. At the back of the hut were four white, stripped mattresses. The footlockers that belonged to Captain Blue and his crew were missing. Pictures, letters, and personal effects were missing from their nightstands. As Jack looked in horror and disbelief at what he was seeing, he heard the sounds of incoming planes flying overhead. Jack lowered his head and slowly walked out of the hut, Softly closing the door behind him. That night at the mess hall, Jack and the others were told by another officer that Captain Blue's plane had been shot down over the target. The officer didn't describe what happened. All he said to them was, quote, It was the kind of hit where we didn't bother looking for parachutes. Thank you for listening to the very first episode of Snafu a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. If you'd like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Kanto 34 Studios, a DIY project helping to raise awareness to the brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies of Europe in World War II. I hope we do it justice. Thank you for listening. And stay tuned next week for episode two of Snafu, Last Night on Earth.